Good morning, Facebook family. It is April 19th, 2020, which has several implications. Um, first of which is it is the day before my birthday. Yes, tomorrow is my birthday. And if you are watching this, I will take checks payable up to and exceeding $1 million as a birthday gift. I'm totally, totally just kidding. Um, but among not just my birthday, but also April 19th, we are on the Sunday just following Easter Sunday. And it always leaves the question, Easter Sunday is the pinnacle of days for us as Christians. I mean, that's the day that we celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Um, to those that are in ministry, you know that Easter Sunday and Christmas Eve, or the service just prior to Christmas, um, are the two most populated or attended services. And obviously with the COVID-19 situation, we didn't have you know, a quote-unquote attendance for Easter. But Easter always leaves pastors in one of two situations. Either the pastor seeing the attendance and seeing the church, you know, they rejoice and they're in a great mood and feel like they're on cloud nine on top of the world and they're just owning things or it leaves the pastor distraught and in the depths of despair um, doubting their calling doubting whether or not they're even supposed to be where they're at um, and I know that in the COVID-19 situation it's the same thing uh, there's pastors all over the world that are either on top of the world by what they had for Easter or at the bottom of the earth um, for what they didn't have on Easter. But not just talking about ministers, but following Easter, when you think about it, the whole Christian faith is built upon and founded on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So you have Easter come. You have Thursday, which is the Passover, the institution of the Lord's Supper. Then you have Good Friday, which is when Jesus was on the cross and he was, died as a substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. And then you have Easter Sunday, which celebrates the resurrection and Jesus rising from the dead. And that's like, boom, the pinnacle of Christianity, the foundation for our entire hope and our entire faith. And it's always interesting when you think about it. It's like, what's next? What comes after? What do I do next? Because if you think about it, a lot of people with Christianity, they build up towards, okay, we need to get people saved. We need to get people to accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. You know, okay, now I'm saved. I've given my life to the Lord Jesus, and I believe in the resurrection. I believe in my heart that, you know, Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, that He came and lived a perfect life. He died for my sins, and then He rose from the dead three days later, and He's sitting at the right hand of God, making intercession for me. I believe all that. I accept all that. I've surrendered to His Lordship. What's next? Is Christianity simply a historical religion where we think back to the past and we think about all these facts and all of these things and we accept and acknowledge them as truth and that's, that's it? Is that all that Christianity is? Or is Christianity something so much more that impacts and affects our daily life today and has future implications as well? Well, obviously, if we read the Bible, we know that it, in, fa uh, in fact, affects us today and has future implications. But it's kind of like, well, now that I'm saved, what do I do? I've given my life to the Lord. Do I just go back to business as usual? Maybe a little bit more religious, maybe a little bit cleaner. Maybe I watch what I say. Maybe I watch what shows or what movies I watch. I change what music I listen to. You know, I don't talk to the same people in the same way. I don't hang out at the same locations, but everything else is just business as usual. Is that what Christianity is? Or is Christianity change everything about who I am? 
And so as we move forward today, I've titled this message, um, because Facebook asked for a title, I've titled this message, What's Next? As in, what do we do moving forward? Not saying that there's anything wrong with those people who haven't gotten saved yet, because obviously we want them to get saved, we want them to focus on that, and we never want to walk away from the cross. But I want to know, what do we do now that we've given our life to the Lord Jesus? What do we do now that we're past the resurrection, now that we're past Easter? What do we do? Where do we go? And so if you would, I'm going to be in Acts chapter 1 to start out with. So if you have your Bibles and you've got them in front of you, just turn over to Acts chapter 1. And as you're turning there, I'm going to go to the Lord in prayer and just pray over this message. If you would, I would ask that you would pray for me as well. Um, and let's just uh, let's just see what God has to say. Let's see what the Word of God has to say this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I just ask that that you help me this morning. Lord, I would ask that you would just move mightily on my behalf. Lord, and that your word would come across loud and clear. Lord, if I had to choose between being eloquent or being effective, I would choose being effective every time. But Lord, I pray that not only is this word effective, but that it has enough eloquence so that it can be easily understood and received by those listening. Lord, I never try to be popular, but I always want to be powerful, and I always want the message to be ministered in the power of the Holy Spirit. So Lord, I would just ask that you would take me and use me as a vessel this morning to bring forth your word in the manner that you would have it brought forth. And I pray, God, knowing that the results are entirely up to you, I pray that this word would produce much fruit, that it would produce a harvest in some 30 and some 60 and some even a hundredfold, that it would change lives, that maybe people would be brought into a relationship with you if they don't already have one. And maybe those that have a relationship with you would be brought to a deeper level of devotion, a deeper level of intimacy, and may be able to move forward in the power of the Holy Spirit to live a Christian life. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 1, verse 1. And all we're doing, we're just going to walk through this together, is I want to see, okay, the resurrection has happened. Where do we go from here? What's next? So let's read. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. This is a reference to the Gospel of Luke. Until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of things concerning the kingdom of God. So this is after the resurrection. This is after Jesus had came and spent 40 days with the apostles. He had ministered and taught them things that were left out of his earthly ministry. He had continually just invested and shown them that the resurrection was an authentic event. So this is post-resurrection. This is in the same position that we find ourselves, except they're a little bit further out. Jesus has spent 40 days with them. We're still post-resurrection. Okay, we're convinced that the resurrection happened. Now where do we go from here? Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised which he said, you have heard of from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. All right, I want to stop here for just a second. He gathered them together and he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised. Now this is extremely important 
on two levels. Number one, Jerusalem. Everybody knows that that's the city where the temple is at. Everybody knows that that's in the middle of Canaan, the promised land. I say everybody knows. It's a common knowledge. Um, but Jerusalem actually has a pretty awesome meaning. It actually, we've translated it, some people translate it as city of peace or as place of peace or location of peace. But the actual literal translation of that in the Hebrew is teaching of peace. Teaching of peace. And Jesus commands them not to leave Jerusalem, not to leave the location or the teaching of peace. And what's so prominent about that is because if we have Christ, if we're in covenant with Christ, then we have an invitation and we have access to enter into the peace that only Christ can give. He says this prior to his death and his resurrection. He says, I'm leaving, but my peace I leave with you. My peace, not as the world gives, but my peace, a peace that passes all understanding, a peace that baffles knowledge, a peace beyond anything that we can receive of this world is available in Christ. It's a peace, a rest, nothing missing, nothing broken, everything whole. The children of Israel in the Old Testament, when they had left Egypt and they were supposed to enter into the promised land, which is a type and shadow of the new covenant, when they were supposed to enter into the promised land, they had a lot of doubting and a lot of murmuring along the way. But the promised land was the goal. It was a land of peace. It was a land of rest from their enemies. It was a land that God had promised to them where they would be able to prosper and grow. Now, when they get to that land, they have peace naturally. But Hebrews tells us that the peace that they had wasn't even an actual peace. It says if Joshua, who led them into the promised land, had given them rest, had given them that peace, then David, who followed Joshua, would not have spoken of another day. David spoke of the coming of Jesus Christ, who would institute a covenant where we might have a peace that goes beyond anything that they had by entering into the promised land, a peace that goes beyond all knowledge, a peace that goes so far beyond our ability to comprehend that it baffles. It's kind of like what I said last week when I was talking about Nero and walking through while Rome was burning, that the world can be falling apart around us and we have that peace, that inward sanity, that inward focus, that inward calm, that we are resting in Jesus Christ. No matter what's going on in our lives, we are resting in Jesus Christ. And that's only available through this covenant. But Jesus tells them to stay there. Stay in Jerusalem. Don't leave Jerusalem. Stay in that place of peace and wait for the promise of the Father. And what's so awesome about this is because Jesus is telling them that in this place of peace, that's where you're going to receive the promise. You're going to receive the promise in that place of peace. And so if we want to receive the promise of God, which Jesus identifies as the baptism of the Holy Spirit, if we are going to receive that, we're going to have to receive that in that place of peace. You can't receive that when you're stressing about everything and you're worrying and your mind is full of anxiety and fear and doubt and you're all over the place. This is something that you're going to have to come to that inner peace and rest in Jesus Christ to receive that promise. But Jesus exhorts them not only to stay at Jerusalem, but he exhorts them to wait upon the promise of the Father. And I find this hilarious because waiting is such a foreign concept to us. Waiting is such a foreign concept to us in the Western Hemisphere and in the American culture because we have such a quote-unquote microwave society where it's like we want what we want and we want it now. We don't want to wait on anything. If you don't want to cook, we've got a microwave. If you don't want to sit down in a restaurant, we've got drive throughs If you don't want to watch a long, drawn-out movie, we'll make short films for you. If you, don't, <laughs> if you can't afford it, we've got credit cards. If you don't want to use a credit card, we've got loans. If you can't afford that, we've got uh, loan forgiveness. I mean, it's just on and on and on. 
on about how we try to get what we want today. Doesn't matter about the long-term implications. We'll max out credit cards. We're not worried about bankruptcy. If we get there, we get there. We'll do whatever it takes. It doesn't matter if we can't afford the payments. We'll take a loan for that house. We'll take a loan for that car. And we'll just say, you know, if I lose it, I lose it, but I want it today. And Jesus is going completely against that by saying, wait for the promise of the Father. Wait. And I think what's so humbling about this is there's that principle of patience. We go to that place of peace and then we wait. And I don't know about you guys, but one of my biggest challenges is patience. One of my biggest challenges is to wait for anything. I am a go-getter. I am a worker. I Some people have labeled me a workaholic, but I want things to be done. And I'll work 12 to 16 hours in a day or even longer or work overnight to get something accomplished. I want it done the day that I start it. You know, I laugh. Um, Faith had recently chalk painted our table and she wanted it done that day. So she would paint it, let it dry, have a timer set, and then she'd go out and put the second coat on. And then she'd go out and put another coat on because she wanted it done and ready to use immediately. And that's the way that we are across the board is patience isn't one of our strongest things. I mean, we want to accomplish things. We don't want to go through the process. We don't want to wait for the promise. We want to accomplish the promise. We want to kind of speed up the timeline a little bit. And so in that place of patience where you're having to wait on something, peace is the last thing on my mind. I'm stressing about it. I mean, I want to show you guys something. This right here, this is uh, my Bible that Faith got me as my birthday present. I've wanted this Bible for a long, long time. And as it was coming in, it was two to three days shipping. But I tell you, every single day, I was pulling that tracking number up. Even though it told me on the first day what day it would arrive. It was going to arrive on Friday before 8 p.m. by FedEx. Well, Wednesday. I'm checking. Okay, it's still Friday. Thursday, I'm checking. Okay, it's still Friday. Friday, I'm checking. Friday midday, I'm checking. Because I don't have peace about it. I want it now. I don't want to wait on it. And the same is true. I'm sure you guys have ordered things off Amazon. You're checking it every single day. If you forget a day, you're checking it twice. The next day, you want what you want and you want it now. So when you're sitting there waiting on something, you're not resting. You're stressing out about it. Like, hurry up and get here. Hurry up and get here. But Jesus says, wait on the promise of the Father. Wait on the promise. And so I want to begin to show you this kind of progression here. It starts with peace. Finding the peace that's available in the covenant with Christ. And waiting on the promise. Because in the prom, or in the peace is where you'll find the promise. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord... Is it at this time you were restoring the kingdom of Israel? And see, part of me is like, they still don't get it. Even though they've been three and a half years with Jesus, even though that he had died and was buried and rose from the dead and came back and spent 40 days teaching them and ministering to them and showing them the unanswered questions, then they're still asking, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel now? Now you can take this as they're asking about eschatology, like is this, the, is this coming? Is the end of the world here? Is that what's happening? Or you can take it that they're going off of the Jewish tradition that the Messiah would be the deliverer and throw, overthrow the Roman occupation and establish the kingdom of Israel. Either way, they're asking about something that's 
either not going to happen in the manner that they see or something that's a future event because they still don't get the premise of the ministry of Jesus Christ. They still don't get the role of the Messiah. They still don't understand what it is that Jesus is trying to minister to them. And I think for us, I know that I'm rambling a little bit. No notes. I'm just flowing with this. But I think that we do the same thing. I think that when we are trying to wait if God has promised us something, maybe it's, um, I'll use myself as an example before I became a pastor and I knew that I was supposed to be full-time ministry and I was working a job at Lazy Boy that many of you know that I could not stand that job. But as I was working that and I had the promise of God, the gift and calling of God are without repentance. I had the promise that I was going to be a minister and that I was going to be able to minister the gospel. And I had opportunities to preach, but I knew that the ministry that God had promised me was different than what I was walking in at that moment. And so every single day, I didn't have patience. I wasn't the greatest example of someone that was walking or abiding in the peace of God. I was stressed out. I complained. I murmured. And I probably made the wait longer than it had to be if I would have just had rest and abided in the peace of God waiting on the promise. But I wanted it to happen according to my understanding of what he had promised. See, sometimes God gives us a promise about something and then we take our interpretation of that as gospel rather than taking the promise for what it is. God told me I was going to minister. So I was like, okay, I'm going to minister. It has to look like this. A, it's going to be in a church. B, it's going to be in this location. C, it's going to be like this. This, and there's going to be this and this and this. But that was my interpretation or what I felt like God meant by his promise when the only promise I had was that I was called to preach and minister the gospel. And so I took my interpretation of what he had promised and I set that forth as fact. And some of us, I think when God has promised us something in our own lives, whether it be ministry or healing or financial breakthrough or deliverance or whatever it may be, we take our interpretation of what that means and we impose it upon what God has actually said and that over or superimposing of it has changed and so we're waiting on something that A, may never happen or B, may happen in a manner that we might not expect. And so when it does happen, we are upset about the way that it happened because we had our heart set on something else. And I think that we need to get to this position to where we're willing to say, okay, God, not my will, but your will be done. Not what I picture, but what you picture. Not what I have designed, but what you have sovereignly designed. Because in the end, you know what's best for me. I'm looking at the short-term credit card microwave type society and type theology and you're looking at the long-term end of the world eternal implications that I can't see because my mind is not infinite and all-knowing like yours is so I'm willing to surrender myself to the Lordship of Jesus and let him give me what I know or what he knows is best for me and for those around me and so the apostles still didn't get it and Jesus says to them, It is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. So it's not even a rebuke. It's just saying you're asking about something that it's not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. So we talked about Jesus says, Abide in the peace of God. 
Get into the covenant with Jesus and enter into that rest. Enter into that peace of God. And in that peace, you'll receive the promise. And the promise is the power of God. And that power is meant to accomplish the purpose of God, which is identified here. So Jesus is simply saying... Stay in Jerusalem, stay in the teaching of peace, the teaching of Jesus, everything that Jesus is teaching is a location of peace if you truly get into that and enter into that through his covenant. And in that place of peace, you have the promise of God. And that promise is the power of God that is set forth for the purpose of God. See, we like to talk about the Holy Spirit. And I have a charismatic background. So we like to talk about speaking in tongues. We like to talk about dreams and visions and word of knowledge and words of uh, wisdom. And we like to talk about prophecy. And we like to talk about all of these things that are the power of God. And some of the churches that I've ministered in, people will fall out in the Spirit every single service. You could say, after after church today, after service, we're going to have a potluck dinner. And you've got sister shout about it. And she's like, hallelujah, falling out in the Spirit. Because... That's just the background, and you've got people doing their praise dances, and they call that the power of God. And I'm not arguing or saying that those things are terrible or awful. Some of them might be out of order, but that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is if that is all the power of God is, then we should be upset. We should be miserably disappointed if all the power of God is, is for us to have a good church service. I love good church services. I love exciting church services. I love worship where you dance and praise and people shout and get up and run around the church. Like that stuff is awesome. But if that's all that the power of God is, then that's a crying shame. The power of God is so much more than that. And you can see right here that when Jesus is talking about the promise, he's saying, stay in Jerusalem until you receive the promise, which is the power and then he reveals the purpose. And you know that that's the purpose because that's when you leave Jerusalem. Let me explain a little bit further. He says, stay in Jerusalem. But once you've received the power, then he says, you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, and even the remotest parts of the earth. So that requires leaving Jerusalem. Now understand, you're never going to leave that place of peace with Jesus. You're going to have that inside you and take that with you. But you have that place of peace where you remain until you receive the power. And then once you receive the power, then you go to accomplish the purpose, which is the Great Commission, which is what we're all about, is sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, winning the lost, evangelizing to those who need it. This is the next step. When I say what's next, this is the next steps that I'm talking about. As soon as you get to that place where you're like, okay, Jesus Christ died for my sins. He is my substitution. And then not only did he die for my sins, but it was confirmed that he was the Son of God and he was the Messiah. And this whole thing is real by him rising from the dead. Now that I'm in that, I've surrendered to his Lordship, what's next? What's next is me to enter into that rest, enter into that peace, wait on that promise, receive that power, then go forth to accomplish that purpose. In Jerusalem, that's everybody that's like you. That's people that live next to you. That's people that you get along with in your inner circle. That's your friends and family. In all Judea, that's your actual natural neighbors that live next to you. The people that may not be like you, like you, but the people that are similar to you. Maybe that's, if you're African-American, maybe that's people that are of the same culture than you. If you're Anglo-Saxon, maybe that's people that are of the same culture as you. If you're Hispanic, that's people of the same culture as you. They're not like you. They don't, might not have the same interests, but they have the same cultural background. But then he goes beyond that and he says, and Samaria, which we've talked about when we talked about John chapter 4. Samaria are people that are necessarily your enemies, people that you don't get along with, people that you don't like, but you're still required to love them. You're still required to share the gospel with them. You're still required to pray for them and intercede for them and beg them not to go to hell. You're still required to share the love of Jesus with them, even if you don't like them and they don't like you. 
and even to the remotest parts of the earth. That's people that are in other cultures, may not even speak the same language as you. That's people that you may only meet one time in your entire life. You're required to share the gospel with them as well. That's the purpose behind the power. And that's what makes the power so wonderful, is the fact that the power of God is not just so that we can have our good services. The power of God is not just so that we can get excited and run around to church with our hands up high and say hallelujah a bunch of times. The power of God is so that we can go forth and show the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's keep going. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them, two angels, and they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem. They're obedient. They're obeying the teaching of Jesus. From the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they had entered the city, they went to the upper room where they were staying. They went to the upper room where they were staying. If you remember Passover last Thursday, Jesus broke bread with his disciples in an upper room. That's where he took the bread and he broke it and he said, This is my body which is broken for you. Take, eat as often as you do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup and he said, This is the wine of the new covenant. This is my blood which is shed for you. As often as you drink it, do so in remembrance of me. This is the Lord's Supper which we are supposed to continually partake of, that we are supposed to continually have to put us in remembrance of the sacrifice of Jesus, the fact that he gave his body up to be beaten and bruised and broken, the fact that he gave his blood and he shed it so that he could put it on the heavenly mercy seat to make eternal atonement for our sins. This is something that is continually instituted as a sacrament of the church so that these elements remind us constantly of the sacrifice of Jesus. And it's interesting when they go back to Jerusalem, they go back to the upper room where they had had that Passover with Jesus and that's where they stay until they receive the power. See, a lot of people, and I've heard it said multiple times, that you come to the cross to get saved but then Christianity takes you beyond the cross. And I say, no! No, Christianity has the cross always in your mind. True, you want the power of the Holy Spirit, you want to go forth, you want to learn the doctrine and the teachings of the church, great, but you cannot learn them unless it's filtered through the lens of the cross. If you go and you look at a Paul's epistles, three-fourths of the New Testament, you will see that every bit of his doctrine is done th so through the lens of the cross. He's like, be good to your wife. Why? Because Christ is good to the church. Be good to your kids. Why? Because your heavenly father is good to you. It's all done through the lens and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Paul says, I determined to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. So when I say what's next, what's next is that you realize that you're never going to go further than the crucifixion. You're never going to go further than the resurrection. Our entire Christian focus is built upon the foundation of that resurrection and that substitutionary sacrifice. And everything that we do Beyond that is done so through the lens and through the power that we receive by that act of Jesus Christ. They return to the upper room. And then it just lists who was staying there. In verse 14, these all with one mind, one mind, one mind and one accord. It's very important. Unity is very important. 
were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, with his brothers. Now, I want to kind of step into something. And I know this is going to kind of seem um, a little bit jagged, but I'm setting all of this up as a foundation to show you how to move forward as a Christian. Because so often we want to show people how to get saved. And then we just expect them that are babes in Christ to instantly act like elders and to know the rhetoric and to know how to pray and to know how to read the Word. But the truth is, is that the only way that you ever learn how to pray is by actually praying. The truth, the only way to learn the Word is by actually getting in the Word. The only way to grow as a Christian is to be a Christian. But I want to give you guys a couple of base guidelines for how to move forward in prayer. Because if you want to walk in this power, if you want to receive that promise, you're going to have to do so in a position of prayer. See, when Jesus said, go to Jerusalem, which we've identified as the place of peace or the teaching of peace, and stay there and wait on the promise. That word wait is interesting because when it says that they were devoted, they continually were devoting themselves to prayer, that word devoted one of the meanings of devotion is waiting. Let me explain devotion in a little bit greater sense. See, when we think of devotion, we think of consistency. If you um, work out for an hour a day, every day for three years, people might say that you're devoted to working out. That's one of the possible meanings of devotion is consistency. If you, um, I'm trying to think, if you read a lot, and you read four and five hours every day, and it's like anytime anyone sees you, you have a book in their hand, and you're constantly reading, then one might say that you're devoted to reading because one of the meanings of devotion is consistency. One of the meanings of devotion is constant. But another meaning of devotion and a less well-known meaning is to wait on. If we, And that can be in the serving or that can be in the receiving portion, that we could be devoted if we are waiting on somebody in the sense that we are serving them in any way and capacity, then we might be devoted to our master. Uh, a servant who, or somebody that works at a job, if they're constantly doing anything and everything that their employer asks, someone might say, well, they are devoted to their job. If they're willing to go in to work no matter the hour of night, no matter what day, even on their off days, they're willing to go in for the extra hour. Someone might say that they're devoted to their job. That's the service aspect of devotion. But then there's the patience aspect where it's we're waiting and willing at any point in time to hear the voice of our master. That's another form of devotion. And that's the form of devotion that I think is most prominent here. Not just the fact that they were consistent. They were in there waiting on the Holy Spirit, waiting on the promise of the Father continually in prayer. So they were consistently in prayer. They were constantly praying. All of that stuff is true. If God said something, they were willing to do it. You see that by the fact that they went back to Jerusalem and they remained there waiting on the promise. So they were obedient to the word of Jesus. That as soon as they got the baptism of the Holy Spirit, they immediately began evangelizing. So they were waiting to receive the orders from Jesus and what to do. But they were also waiting to receive that promise from on high. And one aspect of prayer that I feel like is so overlooked is that when we go to God in prayer, we bring our grocery list. And so if we're going to spend 10 minutes in prayer, nine and a half or nine minutes and 45 seconds of that prayer is everything that we need. And so we'll go to God in prayer and we'll say, okay, God, I need my bills to be paid. My check was a little bit short. Um, I want you to take care of my spouse. I want you to bless them. Um, I don't know where my, some, my kids are off at so-and-so's house tonight. I want you to make sure that they stay safe. I want you to protect them. I want you to be with them. You know, I'm not, 
I can't talk to my family right now. Coronavirus has got everybody distanced. I want you to be with all of them. Oh, if you could make sure that the grocery store has the stuff we need when we place our order, that would be great. Um, and then as we end it, we're like, oh God, did you want to say anything to me? Okay, amen. And then we're done. And really, I think that it should be the other way around. I would encourage you, as you move forward, when you begin to pray, don't jump into prayer and start saying, okay, God, this is what I need. Boom, 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 boom. Because when you exhaust your list, you're going to get up and step away. But go to God in prayer and say, God, you know the things that I need even before I ask them. So we can talk about that in a moment. But I want to come to you and I want to invite you to speak to me. Because me, your servant, your child is listening and ready to hear and receive whatever you have for me. And institute this idea of a quiet moment before God. Force everything out of your mind. Don't worry about your bills. Don't worry about your relationship status. Don't worry about the corona. Don't worry about the persecution. Don't worry about all of the exterior focuses. Just push all of that out of your mind and fixate your mind on God. And just say, God, I'm here to be with you. We have this concept that we're going to set aside five to ten minutes of quality time with the Lord. When really and truthfully, you can't do that. That would be the equivalent of me saying, I'm going to set aside 10 minutes of quality time with my wife every day. Most of the time, it's just 10 minutes. And quality time cannot be birthed out of a schedule. You give forth a quantity of time, and some of that will become quality time. I'm not saying, and I want this known, I'm not saying that you have to carve out three hours a day every day for prayer, because I know that while that would be amazing, and I would commend you for doing so, that may not always be realistic with some of our schedules. But I'm asking for you to be able to put yourself in a consistent and constant position of prayer to where you talk to God throughout the day, and that you set aside moments in the day. If it's 5, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, great, to where you can just get alone and be quiet before God and say, okay, God, here I am. I would ask that you would reveal yourself to me, that you would reveal your word to me, that you would speak to me because I want to hear you. I long to hear your voice. And I guarantee you, to put it like uh, Justin Wilson, I guarantee you that you will hear God. And it may not be the booming audible voice, the sound of thunder or the rushing of many waters. It may just be a still small voice that your ears can't hear, but your heart perceives but I guarantee you, you'll begin to hear the voice of the Father. And when you do hear that, it will become an encouragement and an unyielding passion in your heart to get it again and to hear it again and to hear it again. And before you know it, your five minutes has turned into 50 minutes. And before you know it, the most exciting portion of your day will be those portions where you can get alone with the Father in prayer. Prayer should not be laborious. It should not be a chore. It should be an excitement to where we can say, God, I just want a moment with you. I just want a conversation with you. For those of you that have kids or have spouses or whatever, or even if you don't have a spouse, but you have that special girlfriend or boyfriend, 
you can re you know exactly what I'm talking about. And you can remember those times where you're like, man, today has been just such a hard day. I just want a moment with my wife. I just want a moment with my kids. I just want a moment with that special someone where there's not everyone climbing. There's not everyone forcing in, demanding my attention, but I can have them just us for a moment. I know as a parent that Faith and I, we love our children. And there's moments that I have with them that are amazing, like when they first wake up in the morning and I can have both of them pile up on the couch with me and we can watch a movie together to start the day before we actually get up and get breakfast or anything like that. Usually it's like Mickey Mouse Clubhouse or something. But I know that that feeling that it puts inside of me, that I just long for those moments. And Faith has those moments with the kids as well. But there's also another aspect to when we put the kids to bed and they finally fall asleep where Faith and I can sit down together and have a snack or watch a movie or read and study and pray together where we just have a moment where we have each other and the world isn't forcing in on that. And the same desire or fervency and even a greater extent is available for you with God. When you start to find that and you start to feel that, that's going to be a captivating desire. And prayer won't be a chore anymore. You'll long for prayer. And that longing for prayer will produce a longing for the Word as well. And that's what I want for you guys is I want you guys to grow in that relationship with Christ. Because when I say what's next, what's next is Christ in that relationship with him. Yeah, you never go beyond the crucifixion. You never go beyond the resurrection. But there's something contained in that. When you begin to have that relationship and that intimacy in prayer, you're going to look at the crucifixion through a whole new lens because you're going to realize that that's something that a father did for his child. Because you are a child of God through the adoption provided in Christ Jesus. That's something that a father did. That's something that someone that loves you did. The resurrection, the power that all was demonstrated, that's something that's available to you and can be found in this place of peace, in this place of prayer. It's through continual devotion to prayer. Now go to Colossians 4.2. It's just a couple verses here. Devote yourselves to prayer. Sound familiar? It's what the apostles were doing, devoting themselves to prayer. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Three things. The first one is devotion to prayer. We've already went over that through the uh, Acts passage and the apostles. But it says, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. I want to tell you guys a secret. I think that the secret, and this isn't 12 steps to get rich, but I think that the secret to the Christian life is thanksgiving. If there was a secret, and I was going to say, this is the secret to Christianity, I would say it's Thanksgiving. I would say that Thanksgiving is a key that unlocks the joy of the Lord in your life. It is impossible for you to truly have Thanksgiving and to be depressed. Either you will stop being thankful or you will stop being depressed. 
Now, will you not, will you no longer combat depression? Not saying that. Will anxiety no longer try to come against you? I'm not saying that either because those are attacks of the enemy and so they will continue to peek their ugly head up at you over and over and over again. But if you can get into this position of thanksgiving, see many of us, we go to prayer and we come to prayer like this. We're like, God, will you please help me with these kids? I'm about to lose my mind. They're stressing me out. They're all the time climbing on top of me. They're always needing something. I can't ever get a moment alone. Please help me with these kids. Or, Lord, I love this woman that you gave me, but God, she's always nitpicking me and she's nagging me and I can't ever get anything accomplished. And if I do get it accomplished, I don't ever do it right. Or if you're a woman, you talk about your husband. Lord, I give him these things that I need him to do because I'm incapable of doing them. But all he wants to do is something else. And so these lists keeps getting longer and he says he'll get it done, but it's been six months and he still ain't got it accomplished. Or, Lord Jesus, this job, I know that I need it, but I hate it, and it's stressing me out, and I'm always tired, and I don't ever get to enjoy this time with my kids, and I don't ever get to enjoy time with my spouse, because it's like I work, and I come home, and I eat, and I sleep, and then I go back to work, and I never have anything but work. Is this what I was created for, is just to work this job? Or, I mean, there's a million examples that you could put forth. But try it like this. God, these kids, they can be stressful. They can be climbing on top of me and sometimes I feel like I'm going to lose my mind. But God, I have to remember these kids are gifts and that I'm getting to watch them grow up and I'm getting to be the one that they run to when they're scared and I'm getting to be the one that when they need something, they want me, not anyone else. And I get to watch a man or a woman grow up knowing that I was gifted the ability to be a steward of that life. Thank you, God. Thank you for the crazy times because they're going to be some of my greatest memories. Thank you for the times when they stress me out because they grow me as a person. Thank you for the lessons that they teach me about how I am as a child of God. And if it's about a spouse, Lord, I know that this relationship can be tough and challenging and marriage is awful sometimes and amazing at others. But thank you, God, that you gave me another person to share life with. Thank you, God. Even if the situation falls apart, thank you for the times that I got to experience. And thank you for the next season of my life. Or if it's money or a job, thank you, God, that I'm physically able to work this job. Even if it is exhausting, thank you, God, that it meets my financial needs and it provides for my family and there's always food on the table and that I'm not worried about losing my job because I know that it's there and I'm not worried about whether or not we'll be able to pay the bills because my job meets that need. Whatever it is, there is ways to be thankful in it. And even if everything sucks, and you're like, my job's, my marriage is falling apart. My job sucks. You know what? Thank you, God, that I'm alive and that I have been shown the glory of Jesus Christ so that this life and these momentary afflictions are not even worthy to be compared to the glory and the weight of that glory and the joy and the bliss that awaits us for all of eternity. This short life that's full of troubles. I have an entire eternity of joy waiting for me. God, thank you that you've shown me that so I don't have to spend an eternity in hell. There's always a way to be thankful. And if you are thankful, then that thanksgiving will birth forth praise, which can transform into worship and you can get into 
into even deeper levels of intimacy. And in that position of thanksgiving, you're going to find the peace of God that we've been talking about. And remember, if we're in that place of peace, being thankful and in prayer, devoted to prayer, then we have the promise coming. And if we have the promise coming, we're going to have the power. And if we have the power, then we can accomplish the purpose and the joy of the Lord and all of that will be our strength and we'll be able to continue and persevere in ways that we never were before because God is for us. And if God is for us, then who can be against us? And the last thing, and I'll just kind of make this quick, but the last thing is praying for us as well. So three principles, being thankful, being devoted, and praying for others. Philippians 2 says, Think not every man on his own things, but think every man also on the things of others. Esteem not yourselves better than others, but let every man esteem others better than themselves. It's this principle of if I have something, or I don't have something, if I have a need, I'm going to put others' needs above my own. I'm not going to just pray every time I pray it from a selfish position. My needs, my family, my job, my finances, my health, my, my, my. But I'm rather going to pray theirs, theirs, theirs. Lord, I know that their marriage is struggling. Please seal that up. I know that they're having a tough time with their kids. Please give them strength. I know that their job is terrible. Lord, please either promote them or bless them or give them another career opportunity. Lord, I know that their health is down. Please bring healing to them. And it's that your prayer becomes inhabited by the cares and the concerns for others, not just your own. And that we, through that, will build the body and the unity among believers. Because if you're praying for people, then you're going to generate compassion for them. If you're praying for people, then you're going to love them. And you're not going to be able to hate your enemies if you're praying for them. You're not going to be able to be angry or to bear grudges for people if you're consistently praying for them. But you're praying for others is going to produce fruit. And that fruit will end up showing itself in their lives. If you want to see something happen in your own life, find somebody that has the same issue and pray for their issue and watch yours be resolved. Put other people above yourself. Don't make yourself the end-all, end-all. But let your Christianity be unselfish. It's not self-centered. It's Christ-centered. And in Christ, we all make up the body. And so if we're truly going to be a body intertwined together, we're going to have to pray for one another. So I'm going to leave, I'm going to end out with this recap here because I know I've kind of been all over the place, but I promise it's all streamlined. When you ask what's next, understand that there is really no next. It's what's now, what's inside the crucifixion, the substitutionary sacrifice and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because that's the place where we always stay. When they went to Jerusalem, they went to the upper room to abide. Jesus Christ instituted a sacrament so that we would continually have the resurrection and the crucifixion in front of our faces so that we would never forget what he did. So you never go beyond the cross but you can minister from the cross, if that makes sense. So in that, we find the peace of God that's available to us in the covenant of Jesus Christ. And that peace is contained within it, a promise. And that promise provides power, and that power enables us to accomplish His purpose. And if we want that power, if we want that promise, then we get it through peace in a position of prayer, devoting ourselves to prayer, waiting on God, being constant and consistent in prayer, having our prayer seasoned with thanksgiving, and praying for one another and not just ourselves. So let's wrap it up right there and let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I just want to thank you for your word, for the opportunity to minister the gospel. Lord Jesus, I pray that it may have seemed all over the place, but I pray that something, even if it's just one thing, was able to affect and to benefit someone who was listening. Lord Jesus, I pray that your word is like a sword that cuts through. Lord, it says that the word of God is a double-edged sword that separates joint from marrow, that can divide soul and spirit and even discerns the thoughts and intents of the heart. Lord, I pray that that 
sword does a spiritual circumcision on everyone that was listening and that they can be conformed and made to look more like you, that they can grow in their Christian maturity and their Christian walk. And Lord, I pray that it's an arrow that pierces their heart, that breaks down their defenses and changes and transforms who they are. Lord, I pray that as we come to the end of this COVID-19 crisis, and I believe that we are coming to the end of this crisis, as we come to the end of this crisis, Lord, I just pray that we would come together stronger because of it. That this situation would actually be a blessing in disguise. And that when we come together, we realize the things that we've taken for granted for so long. And that that would encourage an even greater spirit of thanksgiving within us. Lord, to you goes all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.